You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hi, I'm Alan Webb, Editor-in-Chief of the McKinsey Quarterly. I'm in Seattle today, and I'm delighted to be speaking with two longtime colleagues and friends, uh, Sven Smit, a senior partner in the firm's strategy practice based in Amsterdam, and Ezra Greenberg, a senior expert in Stanford, Connecticut. Uh, Sven and Ezra, along with their colleague Martin Hurt, uh, were the co-authors of a recent McKinsey Quarterly article called The Global Forces Inspiring a New Narrative of Progress. The article's been one of the more widely read pieces this year on McKinsey.com. It was the culmination of a major effort to connect the dots between critical global trends and to distill some larger themes such as global growth shifts, the acceleration of industry disruption, and the need for a new societal deal, uh, and then to try to help make sense of them all. Sven and Ezra, thank you very much for spending some time with us today. Looking forward to talk. Thanks, Alan. Great. So let's uh, start at the top. Why do you think business leaders need to focus on big cross-cutting trends? Oftentimes when we get into the strategy discussions with the senior teams, one of the things that I'm finding over the last few months of talking about this work is that everybody does tend to gravitate to what they know. And when they're trying to think about how to formulate their strategy going forward, it's easy to kind of get trapped on the thing that's close to you. And we find that this helps kind of move us back a few steps and open the aperture and just make sure we're not closing out ideas. It's a notion of really just making sure that people, the senior executives who are responsible for the big global decisions are actually seeing the entire landscape and are not closing too quickly on, okay, what, what am I gonna do tomorrow? It's a good challenge because business leaders could say, I'm working in a very particular field, should I not only look at the micro trends that matter to my particular field? When we check this now in multiple sectors with multiple companies and also with our colleagues coming from multiple sectors and multiple geographies, it resonated that most companies would feel a strong point of view uh, to at least half, if not more, of these nine broad-based trends. Uh, and that everyone who lives in society, for example, is currently concerned with the new societal deal. So that one, for example, just hits everyone uh, one way or the other. The exact extent and how it transmits will be different. Uh, and that makes it specific to each business. But we, be, we believe these nine things are hitting most businesses in the positive or in a negative way. You mentioned strategy discussions that are informed by these trends. Um, how do you think this strategy process should incorporate knowledge of your nine trends and the way they interact? The challenge here is oftentimes what you'll see is we'll do an offsite and everybody will think big thoughts. Uh, and then they'll come back and they'll kind of do their job and they won't move to action. Part of the trick here um, is to actually figure out the way to incorporate the thinking uh, and the implications of these trends into an ongoing kind of strategy process. So, for example, a colleague of mine gave us this example of a, a, a medical devices company that came to the idea that there were five big things that they thought were really important from a trend perspective. And in their quarterly strategy meetings and their annual reviews, they were testing all their ideas against and coming back to that and making sure that they were being internally consistent. Do they have to change? Should they follow the same trends? They used it as a helpful guidepost to, to shape their strategy. So it's something that you, for it to be successful, you have to keep your eye on it and you have to integrate it into the regular planning process or it just becomes a fun exercise. I used to summarize what you just said with a very simple 
credo, which is it's easy to paint the wall. Actually, acting on the writing on the wall is the hard part. And the internalization of many of these trends into the actual resource allocation of companies is very different than having a great day talking about trends. Ezra, you mentioned the example of a company that had decided that five of these trends were particularly relevant for them. How, uh, how do you think leaders should make that determination? How do you decide, okay, of all these things, these are the ones that really are critical for us? There's both kind of a top-down and a bottom-up way. As Sven said, we believe that these trends are applicable across industry and across countries. And, and we think it's a very good starting point and it's a very good way to test. But also, we encourage our clients to go through the exact exercise that we went through. We went through a process of first collecting a large, large number of trends, say a thousand plus. And, you know, it's very easy to get to a thousand trends. Just battery technology only would have 10. So we didn't even go to that detail, but we looked at the thousand bigger things that are going on. We distilled and we ended up with 75. Then a group of 40 people studied these trends on their iPads uh, as they came into a big meeting where we did something which is called a collision workshop and people basically said which of these trends 75 and maybe also others that they came up with so they could still insert new ones do you think particularly important to the shaping of the world going forward what are your facts for that and so on but there were whiteboards and then you know as 10 people on the whiteboard or six people on the whiteboard threw them on you moved them to clusters of things that kind of make sense. I think we ended up with, maybe we're in the eight world, maybe we're in the 12 world. We merged, submitted it, made it smoother, tested it with people where it resonated and kept on going. It's really this, this initial creative spot of getting everybody to contribute, which is really where the magic comes from. Both we found that when we did it together with our colleagues and also when we do it with clients, that's the part which is exciting and you know, then folks get to own it. One more question about the strategy process and the use of these trends. How do I know if I'm a senior executive, if my team, my leadership group isn't spending enough time on trends? What would be some warning signs that we're sort of moving along with our heads in the sand a bit? If you have a management team that only talks about market share and there are 20 basis points or 100 basis points of outperformance in market share and they do it and they always say it's because of us, we're just better, they're not particularly focused on the context. And then of course you have an intuition. Everybody that is a board member reads, everybody who wants to listen to the management team reads and you just not hear them talk about China, you know, you must have a feeling that they're missing it and we all know it's big. So you have your own reference list of stuff that might be going on and they never talk about it. That's a good indicator too. Why did you call your article a new narrative of progress? What, what kind of progress are you talking about and why do you think it's important for business leaders to think in terms of uh, progress or, or a new narrative? We've seen broad-based progress over the last century, over the last 30 years, and the articulation of the core trends that are driving progress uh, is in a way the narrative. And with all the changes that have happened over the, just the last 10 years, you know, coming out of the financial crisis and so on, it felt like the narrative that we chose for what's shaping the world was substantially different from a version that we had five years ago and a version that we had 10 years ago, so that it, it did feel like a new narrative rather than just sort of an updated narrative. There's a few things that have happened which you know have changed since the last time that uh, we did this right after the global financial crisis. 
Um, I think that to go through across the buckets, um, there is this question of where the growth is going to come from and what, uh, where should we look for global growth and how globalization is going to impact that. Um, there's a lot of talk now that globalization has come to an end. We don't actually believe that. We just believe it's changed. Uh, so the nature of globalization is evolving, and that's one of the things that's changed. Um, how we're actually combating uh, the challenges of resources has changed as well. Uh, and then I think there's a really big point, certainly on technology disruption, but one of the themes that came out of the work that we were doing is just this uh, notion that we need to have uh, a new idea of how we're going to put the pieces of puzzle together uh, so that there's more um, shared growth and shared prosperity, uh, and that's why we need kind of a new formula. The old formula is not working. In your experience, what proportion of companies roughly do you think have uh, a process that takes trends into account sufficiently and, and what proportion are, are struggle with it? My, my experience, but this is uh, not statistical, it's just worked with lots of these teams, is that almost all companies have a conversation about trends. They basically will, at somewhere in the strategy process, ask themselves what's going on and what's important. They might even score, you know, this trend is particularly bad, this trend is pretty good, what are we going to do about it? They might even have that conversation. But then it's somewhere in the transition between that conversation and let's call it the financial plan. They almost forget about the trends. Some are better at it, but the tightness of the translation of the trends to, you know, how does that then actually land in the plan and in a set of actions is somewhat less. I think no, hardly any company misses the top three trends, by the way, in, for their industry. But are they handling 10? Hmm, maybe not. In your article, you described the nine big forces at work as crucibles. I'm curious to know why you used that term and, and why you think it's helpful. The idea of the crucible is a space where different forces are coming together to kind of create change. Um, and as you heard Sven describe the process that we went through uh, to try to synthesize up these forces, underlying that is sets of tensions. So each one of the crucibles, we call them crucibles, not trends, because they're combinations and synthesis of, of trends. And these trends are sometimes pulling in opposite directions from each other, right? So what we're convinced of is that these crucibles create the spaces for which we believe executives will make some of their most important decisions. But we don't have certainty in, in, way, in terms of how the opposing forces are going to work, their, work themselves out. So it's important uh, not to get overly predictive about, well, this is what's going to happen. What's, in, what's better is to actually understand the forces at work and try to make the decisions with those things in mind. You could have the thought that as the world gets richer, there will be more demand for agricultural land because of richer people eating more meat, which needs to then more inputs and all that stuff. And, it's, and that would be a trend that has a certain direction. Clearly, there's an increased demand of meat. And at current productivity, that would change the, the, the demand for land. Reality is the agricultural productivity at the moment is improving faster than the demand increased by the shift of wealth and a shift to meat. And the net result is when you talk about the re resource land, there's far more balance than a single trend would actually suggest. And I think one of the things that goes wrong in many trend analysis is that a single trend gets celebrated, but you can't invest in it. Let me take a very popular one. Lots of people will talk about aging, but you can't invest in aging. You can invest in a healthcare business that on one side benefits from aging, but on the other side might not benefit from regulation. And the net 
result might be that you don't invest. So it's this convolution of trends that adds up to the story. And that's why it's a little more complex. And that's the whole often called the crucible. You called one of the nine uh, crucibles the dark side. Uh, it encompasses things like terrorism, cybersecurity. Why do you think this dark side has become more important? And, and how do you think that specifically ought to factor into senior leaders' planning? The name is a bit cagey, maybe uh, referring to a uh, science fiction film or something like that. But the reality is uh, cybersecurity was not at this, this level on the agenda 10 years ago, and there was not a real equivalent in it. You know, burglary and so on was maybe on somebody's agenda and physical safety of a plant. But cybersecurity is hitting non-process industries, cybersecurity is hitting many industries, and it's just very big. At the same time, we have terrorism at some scale happening. Total deaths are maybe not as high as history, but one person with a truck can do a lot of damage. Uh, and at the same time, you have geopolitical forces that have a darker side to them too, that we all experience every day. And they are profound enough to have serious business implications. Entire companies have lost their right of existence due to cybersecurity, and entire companies have been engulfed in either a positive or negative side of what might have happened with terrorism and so on. So, so we believe this is something that you have to put on the agenda at the minimum from a risk management perspective, but on cyber, you will have to be proactive to just mitigate the potential risk. And the size of the investment is now no longer tiny. It's actually a, becoming a real business in and of itself, actually protecting from the dark side. It's a product of how we went about doing it in this bottom-up fashion. I mean, this came out of the discussion. Right. And it may not be on other folks' lists as they think about it in a top-down way, but when you put together, you know, people who work with business leaders and talk to business leaders and the other outside folks we had in the room, it was just a theme which was, as Sven describing, it's the environment in which we live. Uh, and so if it's going to be relevant, uh, if the work is going to be relevant to senior executives, it has to take the good with the bad. On a more optimistic note, you also talked about stretching toward a new societal deal. And I wonder if you could say a little more about that. What, what are the dimensions of the deal? Who should be striking this yep. deal? And, uh, and, and business leaders, what's their role in trying to come to that deal? It's a rich packet of questions in there. But I think the notion is there was a form of a societal deal, which was about some form of growth that led to prosperity, it led to health of the people, it led to happiness and all that stuff. And, you know, you could measure it in all kinds of different ways, but basically there was progress for everyone. In the Western world, all classes rise. In the emerging markets, the middle class came up, and there was also wealth at the high end of the spectrum. And we basically had now a decade where in the Western world, uh, the middle class didn't prosper, it actually went backwards to some degree, which fuels all kinds of discussions that are now called populism. Uh, but those discussions are fueled. At the same time, in some of the emerging markets, transitions are being made from manufacturing economies to service economies, which are also a new formula against which a deal needs to be made in which everybody can be included and participated in the prosperity. At the moment, I think if you were to ask lots of people whether they feel they know where their future prosperity is going to come from, they will probably not be able to articulate it, and they're frustrated, and that's what they also express with their votes. Uh, they therefore become anti-immigrant. They, they don't actually do that because there's something fundamentally wrong with immigration, but they feel it might go at their prosperity. And so we need a deal in which a new form of growth is being articulated that makes the pie bigger 
and at the same time has an articulation of why that bigger pie would affect everybody in an inclusive sense. Um, and that narrative doesn't fully exist. I think what is why I'm optimistic about it is we're actually having the conversation. And when humanity has a conversation, over time it sort of gets it right. I've spent a lot of time looking at productivity, and when it comes down to it, uh, productivity is going to be a very important uh, lever uh, to uh, to impact growth. Because as we know, you can either grow the number of people or the number of output per person. Uh, and what we what we found um, over time is that you know who creates productivity? Well, it's businesses that create productivity. And we used to call it management functions and tasks, right? It's all of the decisions that business people make in terms of organization, new products, and innovation, which actually are the key element that's going to drive that important part of the equation. Now, productivity is not the only side. There's lots of other pieces that are required for this deal, including the demand side and um, thinking about how wages are paid across the, the income spectrum, et cetera. But the productivity piece is a really important one. Uh, and the only people that can deliver productivity are businesses. Earlier, you said that you thought that there were there was a set of forces that most companies have a handle on. I think you said the top three or so people generally know, and then there's some that are missed. I wonder if you could talk a little more about that. Which of the things that you described do you think are uh, misunderstood or, or, or overlooked most often, and, and which ones do you think people have a pretty good handle on? On the resource discussion, I think there's this general feeling that resources are short and or limited. I just gave the example of the agricultural productivity, which basically makes land less scarce than it looks. And there's quite a lot of productivity things going on and technology changes going on that are changing the equation of resources. Just the shale gas revolution changed the equation on oil. And I could go on and on and on. And some of these equations have changed to a point that I'm not sure you can, with high validity, say that the resources are fundamentally short. You can see it in the commodity pricing too. And that was five years ago. We were in a very different place uh, on that. And so that, that I think people are not fully processing that this might be much longer with us. Uh, so that's one area. This notion that we called out C2B, maybe we should call it customer to business or consumer to business uh, as a frame where supply chains and actually the entire dynamic of product design and service design goes from the customer back rather than a production unit out. It changes fundamentally with the way businesses work. Some companies are feeling it and acting in it. Clearly the online world starts with the click of the customer, but in many other places that's not yet fully uh, processed, I call it that way. The couple that I would add to that was, I, I said one at the beginning, which is this question about globalization. Um, I often get in conversations where people have essentially concluded that it's all about pulling back and local production and global trade is going to disappear and uh, and the world is kind of going to go into reverse. Um, and uh, I, I think that once you sit down and you talk through what's actually happening and the, the shifting nature of globalization and the more kind of micro uh, areas uh, that c should concern people's businesses, I think that they start to see that, you know, maybe it, the way in which we interact globally is going to shift, but the world is probably not going to go in reverse. Uh, and so that's a that's a tricky one because it's all in the headlines that we're all pulling back with trade agreements, etc. cetera. Um, but that we have to be careful not to jump to conclusions there. Uh, I think a, another one, um, and I was at a forum um, over in California a couple of weeks ago, uh, was debating uh, the different types of business model disruptions that are 
uh, that are coming down the, the pike. And, you know, we're all familiar with the kind of Airbnbs and the Ubers of the world. And we had a big debate within the team about whether that was a different business model than, let's say, the other horizontal platforms that we see, such as Amazon, et cetera. And, and we made a distinction there for a very important reason in terms of uh, the way in which they generate value and, and how they're able to exploit excess capacity uh, to, you know, better use resources. Uh, and the question of whether that business model can be applied um, to other industries is is something that I don't think people are thinking through um, in, a, in a careful way because it's hard to do. Coming back to the idea that we've we've got a, a narrative of progress here, I, I wonder if you could sketch out a, a hopeful view of what the world will look like in, say, five, ten years if, if we've experienced the sort of progress you can imagine, and also uh, a less optimistic view uh, to, just to get people's creative juices flowing. So I think in a hopeful narrative, in 10 years, you would have seen a large part of the Western world growing prosperity substantially in sort of growing the pie, as well as that coming to the middle class and the lower classes and the poorer people, and they individually feel progress in their prosperity, in their health, in their happiness as a result. And that that's understood with a narrative that, that feels positive to people. Uh, they understand the growth. It comes from things that make sense. Uh, uh, it, it comes from businesses that have been enabled to be productive. It, it comes from eliminating stuff that's not helpful uh, and stimulating stuff that is helpful. It will feel environmentally consistent. It will feel sustainable in a way. And it, you know, it doesn't go from dip to dip and from hype to hype. And it's sort of a robust feeling of prosperity increase, uh, you know, with, with bumps that might come on the road. And you would see the same thing in a vast slate of the emerging markets, all with their own models and their own narrative. The negative one, is actually unfortunately a relatively easy story to tell uh, and and that is um, we have growth stock particularly in the developed world uh, and as we try to explain in the piece um, there's really just no shared narrative on how to get growth on stock um, and uh, you know if if we don't actually come together and figure out that new recipe uh, then you know it is quite possible that we could be suck and you know what Larry Summers calls this kind of secular stagnation. It's not necessarily a great recession where the economy you know collapses by a big amount, but that we just kind of go sideways. Uh, and if we go sideways, then our ability to actually go and fix the problems that we've ignored over the last 20 years in terms of uh, you know uh, the benefits of globalization, for example, not being equally distributed, um, which is a problem which can be solved. Uh, then it's it's quite possible that we would continue to see uh, the same kind of uh, disruptive um, uh, nature within society and, you know, dissatisfaction uh, and the inability uh, of people to see, as uh, Sven was saying earlier, where their prosperity is going to come from. So leaders listening to this podcast, I w would like to be in Sven's world. And I wonder if you yes. have suggestions for uh, actions that leaders can take now that will... Uh, load the dice in, in favor of that sort of an outcome? The first thing that I think is upon all of us is to be part of the dialogue. I do think when, as I said earlier, humanity talks, 
humankind makes progress. And I think if that means that you can't just be in the sidelines and say, you know, those other guys, the politicians or the scientists, they just don't know and, uh, you know, we'll wait whether they're going to fix it. You need to be part of the dialogue in a substantive way, not just in a casual way. And by being in the dialogue, the thoughts of everyone will shape that new narrative and it will emerge from it. Uh, that's a little bit the optimism that I have, but it starts with uh, our leaders being part of the dialogue. Then you can go more substantive, which saying, you know, we know some of the problems that need to be resolved and some of the opportunities that can be captured. And you could more substantively invest in seeking the solutions than just being part of a dialogue. And you see some leaders do that and weighing in in that more substantive way, I think is probably part of the obligation too. It's of course upon everybody to do that, but you could invest more seriously in that. And thirdly, there are places where you can personally lead uh, through your companies, to your participation in society, to your connection to politics and so on, where, where you're going to try to just shape, not, not just having the dialogue, having the informed answer, but you're actually going to try to help shape the direction in which the narrative is taken. If you had one piece of advice for a CEO about how to lead his or her organization in the world that you've described uh, in your article, uh, what would it be? Shape the conversation so people are aware. I would agree, and I think the the just the sub point to that would be, um, you know, be open to the the broader forces that are going on around, and and you know, feel, you know, you can open the aperture and still have impact on your business. That's a that's a nice note to end on, uh, Sven Ezra. Thank you for your time, and uh, thank you for bringing us clarity and hope. I, I think we all look forward to seeing how this new narrative plays out, and I am inspired about the potential for progress. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.